Hello, and welcome to the 15-Minute Chronic Pain Experience Podcast. I am your host, Dina Chopolis, and I am the head pain coach and chief curator at Pain to Possibilities, where we've been transforming pain experiences since 2018. In this episode, we'll be exploring the link between pelvic health and chronic pain. And I should also mention that we do touch a little bit on sexual health, which may trigger difficult emotions. So please feel free to stop this podcast at any time. I am very excited to introduce you to our guest today, who just happens to be my most favorite um, physio slash pelvic specialist. This is Jill Mueller. Welcome to the show today. I am, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we were just talking a little bit before we press record that I have We've been waiting about a year to do this podcast, so thanks for your patience and for being here. Uh, A little bit about Jill. Jill has been a physiotherapist since 2001. Her interest in pelvic health therapy stems from experiencing her own journey with endometriosis and fertility challenges for 10 years, and I think that's when I first met you. Through learning more about the disease, implementing pain neuroscience and visceral therapy, Jill has taught herself how to escape her monthly cycle of pain. Jill is passionate about sharing what she has learned with other pelvic physiotherapists and her clients and coaches like myself. Uh, So Jill, a little bit about you beyond your professional life. How is it that you got into the pelvic specialist? Well, I think a lot of us who are pelvic health therapists have probably been on the table ourselves, uh, whether it be after we've had a baby or we've gone through some pelvic pain, which are more typical reasons we would see a pelvic PT. And so I was that person who experienced pelvic physiotherapy more from a visceral side for helping with fertility. Mm -hmm. And after that, as emotional as I thought it might get into, I was I just was so, it was like I was being drawn to helping people going through this similar scenarios. Mm -hmm. And then once I started to dive into that area, I realized, wow, there's a lot we can do as pelvic physios to help people who are suffering with different issues as we'll get into. We've had a bit of a conversation before we actually pressed record on this conversation, but I think there's so much power in the caregivers who have been through this themselves. And I know you're also an empath, which is part of it, but it's very much that need to give back when you have seen the results yourself, right? I think it gives hope. I think when people can relate to you've been there as soon, actually, I didn't even have that. I have endometriosis on my bio for about three years. I didn't have it on my bio because I never really identified with it. I was like, yeah, I have it, but whatever, no big deal. And I mean, no big deal as in, I just figured if you have it, you have pain. I don't know. There were, I was where a lot of patients were. And so it wasn't until patients started coming in and saying, I have endometriosis that I said, oh, I know me too. I get it. And they were like, what? And they would like cry. And I realized, oh, this is something that really means something to them to know that I've been through what they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. And right away, they just feel that connection. So I don't want to say I'm, I'm capitalizing on having endometriosis, but I think it does help people realize that I, I get where they're coming from. Sure. Definitely creates a deeper connection and and a sense of trust, which for our community, the chronic pain community. I just had a conversation with a a lady I met the other day, just about hope. I mean, we could do a whole podcast on just either the lack of hope, which is just, especially coming out of a pandemic, so prevalent and that see that they can see you as a great example and how you've come through and uh, are doing quite well. All right. Just for those who may not know necessarily a lot about pelvic health, how would you define persistent pelvic pain? Persistent pelvic pain, it, it by definition is pain in the pelvic area. So whether that's your genitals or your perineum or your rectum tailbone that has lasted longer than six months. Now, I will say a lot of the international pelvic pain societies are looking to change that and are in the midst of changing that to three months. And the reason for that is that it's going to get people care sooner. Uh-huh. So if it's three months the, and, the, and they come into the doctor, the doctor then has to say, okay, well, this is persistent pelvic pain rather than let's 
see how it goes for the next three months. And I think that's important to getting care earlier. Absolutely. And would you say that's more specifically for pelvic health or do you feel like there's a, a move towards shit? chronic pain in general? In general. Oh, good. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I would agree 200%. As far as the pelvic goes itself, it holds a lot of good stuff in there. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about yeah. what does the pelvic compartment actually include? So if we think of the bony pelvis itself, it is it has lots of attachments of the abdominals and then the tr- uh, the lower extremity um, insertions. So it acts as the support and the balance and the and acting as sort of the middle ground where the mobility will happen for the trunk and the lower extremity. Inside that pelvic bowl, we've got the bladder in the front. And for males, we've got the prostate that is around the urethra right underneath of the uh, bladder. We have the uterus and the vagina behind that. Am I allowed to say that word? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Okay. Some some social media you're not allowed to say certain words or you'll get screened so hopefully we're allowed to say the actual anatomical words that's true and then behind that is the rectum and underneath is our pelvic floor so essentially dysfunction in any one of those can they they also talk and communicate to each other through uh their neurological systems through the musculoskeletal system through the vascular system so dysfunction in one of them could result in conversing with other ones so you can end up with multi multi issues in the pelvis right which i would imagine can get kind of complicated and i can see where part of the issue comes with our traditional medical model where they tend to sort of zone in on one aspect and then redirect as to where they need yes. to go next. Yeah, we sort of talked upon that. Like yeah. this is an issue. If someone has a an issue with the bladder, they are sent to a urologist. If they're if they have an issue with the reproductive system uh, or the uterus, and specifically, they are going to be sent to a gynecologist or a GI specialist. And no one is sort of looking at that whole picture. Our current medical model, we do tend to sort of reduce, reduce, reduce to find that one thing. And so what I love about your practice is you're just pulling it together. You're really looking at the complex system at the human as a whole, right? We're so, Mm -hmm. so diverse in our approach. And I think you mentioned earlier too, that you are often the one that will pull those pieces together simply because you are having to look at so many of the pieces. Yeah. The other thing that we mentioned before recording is that as physiotherapists, we're blessed with time. I take an hour to assess my pelvic physio or pelvic patients. And a lot of that hour is spent conversing in the first initial assessment, getting their whole story. Nobody has given them the time to hear how it is affecting their life and all the elements of that life. And we're going to get into that, but it is, not just a physical issue. It, 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 I think when it comes down to the pelvis, it houses so many organs that our primal brain wants to protect mm-hmm. that it becomes quite uh, worrisome when there's an issue down there, instinctually from a reptilian brain side of things. Right. So once somebody understands what's going on, I find it really eases the worry. Right. And and then we can start to build back up from there. I was hoping to talk a little bit about the biopsychosocial approach to what you do. And you did have um, you mentioned about the biological side. And then touching on the psychological side, for those of you who don't know necessarily for our listeners, what the biopsychosocial model means, simply that pain hundred percent of the time is biological, psychological, and social in nature. And so what Jill was just touching on is, is a lot of the biological side, sort of the tissues and uh, down to the cellular level, what might be going on. Then you now have sort of dove in beautifully to the whole psychological side and how there's that fear around the pain and what's going on down there. And perhaps moving is hurting or whatever, but how often are you having to deal with that sense of fear with your clients? 
every single page. 100% of the time. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's, it's a natural. Okay. First of all, I want people to realize this is a natural human response Mm -hmm. to something not sitting right with us in our body. It is, it is to motivate us to get us to do something. It's when our system becomes overprotective and we over worry about it, that it becomes this sort of cycle that we need to figure out where to infiltrate and where to make change. Exactly. What sorts of pain points, sort of the psychological pain points, do you come across? And what sort of words are you hearing your people say? That they will never get better, Mm -hmm. that it is hundred percent because of the disease and until they get surgery, nothing will ever change. Mm-hmm. These are myths. These are not truths. Right. Just mostly the, mostly the worry that it is going to be ongoing. And, and what that does is it be, makes them more and more sensitized in their life. So they end up doing less and less and less. And ironically, the thing that really helps chronic pain is movement and decreasing that fear. And so if we can help coach them through understanding pain Mm -hmm. and then titrating that movement, they will see a shift. You can't just ignore it and go out for a run. That's not what we're saying. But if we can facilitate uh, them doing some movement Mm -hmm. and seeing how that their, their body reacts to that and their mind reacts to that and a lot of it is education honestly and understanding because we don't we i don't know why from we learn and we have still think that pain is a tissue issue Mm -hmm. and as you mentioned it is not a tissue issue it is never determined by the tissue it is always determined the brain by the brain but mm-hmm. when they hear a doctor for example who does or someone who doesn't have a lot of time or a lot of understanding and explaining this it sounds like they're saying it's all in your head right now physiologically it is yes we can actually we can actually see persistent pain on a functional mri which right. is kind of cool yes but it is the treatment that is going to make the difference in getting out of that untraining that learned pain behavior right i'm really hoping that our listeners are kind of picking up our our nuances here like we are talking obviously about the pelvis and so challenges that might come across the pelvis as far as creating pain, but such a big piece of it is just that, um, the psychological piece and, and how are you approaching your pain? And do you understand where the pain is coming from? Now, this is where the conversation gets a little bit tougher, but still on the psychological side of things is, you know, if there's any sort of exposure to trauma, and I mean, specifically sexual trauma, what sorts of things will people potentially experience with the pain that they're feeling if they've been through some sort of sexual trauma or what have you seen in your practice? So first of all, trauma can come from a myriad of of sources. So it can be sexual trauma, but I, the, the point I want to make Dina is that people think it has to be a catastrophic event in order for it to be called trauma. And I, as someone who, has not experienced that, but been through 10 years of fertility, their AKA being poked and prodded many times. I actually now know based on me learning, taking trauma courses Mm -hmm. that I had medical trauma, not in the sense that I had anything negative happen to me medically, which can happen. Yes. Like like birth trauma or anytime you, you have, a sense of control taken out of your hands that's usually traumatic mm-hmm. but mine were little like little micro traumas that built up and what happened was my brain actually my uh in order to protect me emotionally and to protect mostly emotionally mm-hmm. it actually i actually like unmapped my uh from my abdomen down to my mid thighs it, it, it i dissociated from that area. I could not picture when I did a body scan, I couldn't picture that area. I had very lack of sensation. 
uh, and yet ironically had a lot of menstrual pain mm -hmm. but if when when you understand how the brain and there's a map of the body on the brain this makes sense so remapping that area really helped me mm -hmm. now with people with trauma who so i just wanted to point that out in the sense that it could be little things that happen over and build up right um it may not have anything to do with the pelvis it could it could be trauma in the past that doesn't have anything to do with the pelvis and it's stuck in the nervous system and the reaction of the nervous system that we have to deal with but it, it can present as many different ways like a lot of tightening of the pelvic floor mm -hmm. maybe somebody doesn't want to have intercourse so they have difficulty uh getting a tampon in mm -hmm. they can have excruciating pain down there it presents in different ways and because of that presentation we are going to basically take a, an approach that's individualized to them and and the key the key the key is to always make the patient feel safe that is the key to any therapy any therapy whether there's trauma or no trauma yes it what happens is that that might like look different in somebody who has a traumatic background versus somebody who doesn't yeah and so you might need to titrate back i might not be doing an internal well i guess i should tell people pelvic physios have the um training to be able to do an internal evaluation but I have people who have trauma who I've never done an internal evaluation mm -hmm. on and still made changes. So it just sort of depends. We need to meet them where they are at. Absolutely. Oh, and that, that I think the power of meeting them where them where they are at is huge. And again, you do you did mention that beautifully earlier, just about the gift of time. But you also have that knowledge. I think that's one thing that we're really seeing both of us, which was really exciting is that we're kind of closing that gap between the medical model currently and sort of the integrative approach. I have noticed that I will say I have since I've like, I've been in this long enough to be able to see patterns. And in the beginning, you know, I might, I saw a lot more medication. I saw a lot more gaslighting, which yeah. means like feeling not heard by your yes. doctors yes, and being dismissed and that sort of thing. And I'm seeing that less and less and less and less now. And, and, right. and I don't know if the pandemic has something to do with it, but mm -hmm. doctors like they're, they're so bombarded right now. They, yeah. they've got so much on their plate. Yeah. lots of people in pain a lot more pain a lot more yes. mental health issues yes. and they're they are referring out for help they and so i think the beauty of of the pandemic is that it's sort of shifting the medical system slowly towards what it it should be exactly it's, collaborative uh, you know collaborative yeah. right yeah hyper i would even say hyper collaborative like that's work yeah. together yeah I love earlier, and I'm just kind of coming back a little bit to trauma in general. And like you said, regardless of what that trauma is, trauma has its impact. But the important part is realizing that if there is a trauma history, there is opportunity to work through it. So finding someone who is, you know, someone who can work with trauma, because those unresolved issues, as much as we try to help people, if there's those deep unresolved issues, it makes getting better harder. <laughs> yeah. And someone who can meet you where you are, like you said. And I, I think that is an important question to ask because we don't need to have any trauma courses. Mm -hmm. It should be mandatory right, to, to go into pelvic health, Yes, but it's not yet. So I do think it's worth perhaps even asking for a discovery call where you can talk to your therapist for 15 mm -hmm. minutes hopefully they should offer it for free right. sometimes they have it on their website that they are trauma-informed i've done lots of reading i've taken courses on trauma and it is important to to have a therapist that is knowledgeable with yes trauma. absolutely especially if we're talking you know working towards recovery and so yeah. and recovery not just in the in the trauma side but also in the biological side yeah
now that they're getting a little bit more clear on what perhaps what a pelvic specialist can do, what does a typical assessment look like? I know it'll probably vary from person to person as, mm-hmm. as like you said, you're going to come and meet them where they are, but what would a typical session look like if someone was interested in reaching out? So we do an extensive questionnaire ahead of time. So we like to get it all down for a few reasons. Mm-hmm we also make it clear that they don't need to answer any question they're not comfortable with Mm -hmm. but the thorough assessment on paper to start with allows us to sit with our clients and hear their story at the time so i'm not like have a computer in between us me and them and i'm like clicking away and half listening if most of it is down i can screen that ahead of time look at what their main issues are and then sit and listen to their story because once we listen to their story it's it's apparent what is important to them which isn't always apparent on a whole page right Mm -hmm. so that whole page of them filling out will allow me to listen at the time and just jot down a few things if i need to and and then it gives us an idea of where to focus and what they're what's important to them because if they say pain and then they also have urinary leaking and they're like no no let's the pain i'm used to the leaking is distressing to me and i'll be like okay so let's focus on that we can I, i'll educate them quickly about that we can address the pain because they might not even know that but then it allows us to focus on something then there is an objective exam, whether that includes an internal or not, because we want to see how much of this is biomechanically driven, how much of it is biological, right? We have to look at this biopsychosocial. So we want to address the bio too, yeah. however that looks. Mm-hmm. And then if they have pain, I will probably get them to fill out a few more questionnaires because it really phenotypes where to focus. It, mm-hmm. it allows us to know is a lack of understanding of pain where and worry Mm -hmm. is that where we need to focus or is it a dissociation of the body and a mapping issue like mine was right which where we need because you can't really tell when somebody has pain you can't tell what is the driving force to that pain right so that's where we'll go next yeah it's so investigative. I just I just love the work you guys are doing because you are offering a they're being heard it seems like such a great collaboration. You're working together to be able to figure out, you know, what next steps are going to be, perhaps what issues are. So they get through the uh, um, the initial assessment, and then perhaps if there is an internal, how long is this sort of process take for them typically? The initial assessment, it's generally an hour, and then I'm just I'm determining how much time do they need next. Okay, gotcha. So the more complex, the more time. So I do have some people who I need an hour for. There are some people who are 45 minutes. There are some people for 30 minutes. Right. So it sort of depends on what they've got going on. It also depends on what they can afford. So I do, unfortunately, we have to think about money, right? So if they only have a certain amount on their insurance that covers physiotherapy, this is all under physiotherapy, by the way, if they only have a certain amount and can't afford anything above and beyond that, then we just make sure that we're you know maybe doing more frequent appointments at a less amount of time or i give them lots of homework there's lots of variations of what what we can do yeah we have listeners from all over the place uh who may not have access to you do you get a general sense that pelvic specialists will pelvic health specialists will probably have a bit of a handle also on the biopsychosocial model. Are you seeing that the field is expanding that way? Canada is doing a pretty good job of it because we're trained by someone who is well-versed. Now it's not the first course we necessarily take, but if you continue to take courses in pelvic physio, Canada has a really good understanding of of that biopsychosocial approach mm-hmm. and integrating it into the pelvic health. Plus, even at the physio level, it's starting to be integrated into our education system. And I think, honestly, Canada is one of the leading 
the leading Canada and the UK and and Australia and Australia are probably the yeah. leading yeah okay that's great because yeah. I am I am um, I'm always thinking about our American friends because I do I do worry a little bit in the sense that their mm. model is so based upon the insurance companies and what they can offer and so part of the reason this podcast came such a different system right and that's part of the reason why this podcast came about was to I really want to be able to you know, spread the message that there are options. A lot of them don't even know that they have the option of a pelvic specialist. And so that's where our interview is coming into today. So yes, we are very fortunate where we are in Canada, but there is lots of information out on the internet that they can start digging into, even if they do go to see a pelvic specialist and they're not addressing the psychological side, there are resources out there beyond, you know, so go to see a physiotherapist if they focus on the, on the pelvis, if you need to see someone. I'll give you a resource too for our Canadian listeners. You can go on pelvichealthsolutions.ca okay. and they have find a physio and that you can find a physio across Canada from that um, list. And then you can also see what courses they've done. Hmm. So have a look and see if they've done level three. Okay. Because level three is that biopsychosocial. Oh, there you go. Chronic okay. pain understanding. I feel like our physios are kind of leading the way when it comes to the whole biopsychosocial model. So yep, I yeah, I would agree. Yeah. yeah. It's great to see. What do you typically see with pelvic health in your practice? What are some of the common problems for men and for women? Yeah. So I think the cool thing is pelvic physiotherapy is very diverse. A lot of times people will hear about it related to having a baby. Mm -hmm. So either birth prep, delivery options, postpartum. I think if you were to go on Instagram, that's what you would most likely see, mm -hmm. but it's a lot more than that. So yes, we deal with anything to do with pregnancy, postpartum, whether that be pain, leaking diastasis recti which is that abdominal separation right pelvic organ prolapse so when i say leaking that could go for males or females so mm -hmm. if you that could be urinary leaking mm -hmm. whether it's be when you cough or sneeze or jump or run or activity or just walking um, but that can also be fecal as well so some people have cannot control their bowel movements mm -hmm. and so that's something that pelvic physio can help address as well mm -hmm. we also look at for males we're looking at things related to prostatitis if it not so much the infection itself but any residual pain mm -hmm. any erectile issues any genitalia pain mm -hmm. uh, pre and post prostatectomy so we have a program at our clinic that deals with teaching guys how to use their pelvic for floor pre-surgically and then they have their prostate removed and the rehab after that because oh. that does involve leaking and and erectile dysfunction and so the we also have a birth prep program and for women we're looking at pain with penetration whether that be a tampon or whether that be sexually mm -hmm. we're looking at menstrual pain uh again the leaking tailbone pain for both back pain hip pain sometimes knee pain these things that haven't really responded to typical physio approaches mm -hmm. so it can be very diverse oh my gosh you're not kidding <laughs> and i will know why and i can see why it would often be missed you know if they were going yeah. to the doctor who just didn't have the time to do the full assessment perhaps for low back pain and yeah. i think you touched on it much earlier in our conversation around how often times we don't correlate, you know, like the IBS pain with, with mm -hmm. back pain or whatever that might, might be. You are an investigative guru in the sense that you have to do this deep dive and to understand what's going on. When would it be time for someone to see the doctor? And when would it be some time for them to come to see you? It's important to see a doctor if you have suspected infections. So like a fever, abnormal discharge any abnormal odor abnormal bleeding whether that be rectally vaginally uh in your urine those are sort of clear signs that it's a medical issue outside of that if you're leaking if you have urinary urgency frequency urgency meaning you feel like you have to go to the bathroom all the time which i have to say since 
the pandemic huh. has highly increased. So people will think they have a bladder, a bladder infection. Yeah. They will go get a culture, hopefully. Hopefully they're not just put on antibiotics because they're not supposed to be just put on antibiotics, but they, hopefully they get a culture comes back negative, mm -hmm. but our nervous that's very driven into our nervous system. Urgency is a sign of a heightened nervous system. Think of when we did exams back yes. in the day, everybody yes. was running to the bathroom. We either had diarrhea, <laughs> maybe we had constipation, but mostly diarrhea and urgency PA, right. right? So those are signs of that. But the good thing is we have direct access in Canada to physiotherapy. Mm -hmm. So if you have pain that came on out of nowhere, if you have leaking, you can go directly to a physio. Even a lot of insurance companies don't require a note from your doctor anymore. Yep. So we will also help you figure out if you need to see a doctor we were not we'll never just hold on to you and be like no right. you're mine you're mine right <laughs> yeah. so we we were you know we can write a note and say i highly suggest they have and i have like when i suspect for example prostatitis i'm like i think they should get a semen culture mm. where doctors don't always think of that right 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 so yeah. yeah, we can help sometimes figure out who to go to. I am such a, and I'm just glad you said that because I love, I love getting that baseline measurement. You know, when you really understand, someone asked me the other day, what do you think is better as far as a diet goes for chronic pain or for inflammation? And I said, well, there really is no better. We just need to get a baseline and understand perhaps where you're starting from, right? Go to see the naturopath, perhaps get some blood work done from your doctor to see where we need to be, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and then you decide what course you take yeah. Same thing for you guys, right? It's yeah. um, just that clear picture up front as to know anytime you go on a trip, you need to know where you're headed. And so, yeah. When it comes to our current medical model, uh, and again, I, I believe um, we're maybe talking a little bit more about the United States, but how common is it, would you say, that there are misdiagnoses happening simply because they don't have the time to investigate, especially when it comes to pelvic health? When it comes to pelvic pain, mm -hmm. it can often, pelvic pain can be complex because you can have findings. So you could have structural findings, you can have pathological findings, for example, endometriosis or inter with interstitial cystitis, which is like a bladder pain. Actually, the UK and Europe is now calling that bladder pain syndrome, mm -hmm. not interstitial cystitis. And the reason being is we can find these structural issues. So where I'm going with this is you could be diagnosed with something. Mm -hmm. And those diagnoses are not related to a person's experience with pain. And what I mean by that is you can have lots of endometriosis and no pain. This has been proven. Same with interstitial cystitis. They can, people can have Hunter's lesions in the bladder. So there are these ulcers in the, in the or glomulations in findings in the bladder that define interstitial cystitis but they've found those on people with no pain. Mm -hmm. So even, and this has been proven in osteoarthritis, this has been proven in people with disc herniation. Yes. So a lot of times we have these abnormal findings in our body mm -hmm. and we'll find those on a ton of people without any pain, pain symptoms. Right. So that's not to say that your findings are definitely related to your pain experience, mm -hmm. but it might not be the whole picture. And right. that's where we need to look at phenotyping their, that pain and seeing how much is it coming from the biological mm -hmm. and how much of it is a sensitized nervous system. And that's important mm -hmm. because research shows if we have a sensitized nervous system where where it is a learned pain response where we can see it on a functional mri mm -hmm. on the brain mm -hmm. then those people with those experiences are going to be more likely to have ongoing pain post-surgically for example or right. after or don't or they don't respond to regular therapy mm -hmm. including physiotherapy including traditional methods that are not pain science directed right so you could have a diagnosis mm -hmm. 
it just may not coincide with that person's pain experience. Pain experience. So that's, that's where I wanted to say they might be diagnosed properly, but is that what's relating to right. their experience with pain? In support of our current medical model, it's unfair for us to say that there's tons of misdiagnoses is there's so many layers to it. Like you said, yeah. there may be a proper diagnosis. It's just not necessarily where the pain is coming from. Also, there really are not given the amount of chronic pain education, at least things are starting to change a little bit, but up to probably last year, they really were giving, what was it? 12 hours in their whole curriculum where about chronic pain. I, I write a study where 96% of medical schools taught mm -hmm. zero compulsory pain education. So that just to me means if they wanted to learn about pain, it was outside of what was mandated. It was right. an elective. Right. I, the good news is I do. Oh, I think this is changing. I think it's changing. Absolutely. And yeah. I know, I know the physios are and, and pain coaches understand this. And I know that there are some physicians who are starting to push that message, but I feel like right now, currently the message that the chronic pain community is hearing is like you touched on before it's all in our head. And so that is uh, something that we are <laughs> trying to change the wording on because as you know, all too well, and I'm sure when you work with your clients, you are choosing your words in a very specific way to not, you know, bring on more of kinesophobia, like you touched on before as well, that if there are, for example, discs that have been told they are bulging, that does not necessarily mean that brings on the chronic pain. So it's multi-dimensional, absolutely. And if you would like to learn more about our community at Pain to Possibilities, then you're more than welcome to visit our website at www.pain2.ca.
www.pleasantpossibilities.com. Jill, thank you so much for all your time. And uh, I'm hoping, oh my gosh, this was such an important topic. So thank you. So we, again, touching on the whole psychological piece, uh, one of the things that is very common in when it comes to chronic pain is this fear of movement. And we touched on that word before, when we say the word kinesiophobia, we're really saying that there is this fear of movement because there is this belief that movement equals pain and pain must mean damage. So when you are working with your people or how much of that are you actually seeing? How fearful are people of movement when they're in pain? Well, I see two things. Mm -hmm. One, where people fear movement and therefore are doing less and less movement because they become more sensitized to movement. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't take as much to give them that pain experience. And then that it's just this vicious cycle that makes us more and more fearful of movement, right? Mm -hmm. But on the other side of that, I have people who ignore their pain and just go out. I mean, think of an athlete. Like right. they just don't listen to their body. They're like, I'm in pain. I'm running my marathon. But when you have sensitization of the nervous system yep. and even just going about your daily activities, you are ignoring your pain. So those two scenarios, both are not conducive to addressing pain. Right. So I have to figure out, is this a, a person that's ignoring their signals and they're just continuing and barreling through the day? Or are they really fearful and and need to understand pain in order to, to dispel some fears and then build back up? So if we're taking that one person scenario of kinesiophobia, and we screen for that using a questionnaire called the, the Tampa scale or the kinesiophobia scale. Mm-hmm. And and you can you can even get an idea by asking them about their activity level and and them the words they use right but essentially the first thing to do is to get them to understand pain and to not and hurt and to understand that hurt does not equal harm right but 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 to just hear that you you can't just be like okay Yes, <laughs> I'm going to go out and move. Right, that's right. Because it doesn't you can't just unthink it. You have right. it ha- you have to go with also what the brain is understanding and recognizing as right. okay to do. Right. So what we'll do is we'll figure out what is their activity level at this moment where it it doesn't result in a flare up. So right. we're trying to find out where is that boundary. Yeah. And then I say if you go over that boundary, you're going to get pain. Yeah. And so we're figuring out where is that boundary? Mm-hmm. And then once you find that boundary, you want to do a little bit more each day to start to nudge that boundary towards a more typical looking day mm-hmm. uh, or within your goals. Like, I mean, maybe nobody wants to actually run a marathon, but if you do, then that's our goal. Right. If you want to be able to walk around in your day and do your walk up the stairs to your work and blah, 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 and that's your goal, then we're going to work toward that goal and maybe just a bit beyond. So we don't end up in a flare up just at that top step. Right. Thing. Right. Right. And I think you touched on an important point before and earlier in our conversation, which is probably the biggest word is safety. And like you said, yeah. you you really are conditioning over time, slowly but surely, the brain to realize this is a safe movement, regardless if it's pelvic pain, whether it's pain in general is, like you said, it's just allowing the brain to believe that it's in a safe space. And so, yeah. and in that movement, and then you're right, bit by bit, you, you're, that threshold starts to change and the confidence starts to change. So, and that goes for the pelvis. So if you, if we go back to the pelvis, mm-hmm. let's say somebody has pain with intercourse, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then we are titrating that as well. We are finding what is okay. Are I have patients who can't even think about their groin. Right. So we might start with the feet because the if you're th- if you think about an area actually for listeners at home who have any pelvic pain if you think about your pelvis what happens if it if it starts to magnify the pain just by picturing it that's what that's a classic sign uh. of what we call noceplastic pain mm-hmm. or 
when it's been like that's when we know you could probably see it on a functional mri right and and that's okay that does not mean you're stuck there it just right. means that the treatment's different so mm -hmm. if if someone can't think about their pelvis as a start to towards having intercourse mm -hmm. then i might start with the feet and moving the feet because right. the feet are actually next to the genitals on the map of the body on the brain mm -hmm. so you can kind of do a sneak safe attack, mm -hmm. not attack, that's a bad word, but a <laughs> sneak, Approach. A sneaky way to get into being okay with thinking about the pelvis by starting with the feet. Mm -hmm. And then maybe it's just thinking about it. Right. It's called graded exposure. So again, you're finding out where is that boundary? If you can't think about the pelvis without it flaring it up then we might start outside of that area or on the boundary of that area and that's called somatic tracking which is uh -huh. pretty cool uh-huh um yeah yep. you've hit on some really really awesome points there uh the just getting into your feet so like you said if it is mm -hmm. coming from the brain that fear or that thought process that is nociceptic and is sorry no plastic. Sorry. Yeah. Then, okay. yeah, then that's just, let me just go back a step here. Sorry. What you're referring to just so that I'm clear. And so our listeners are clear is there were some MRIs done on chronic pain patients who, um, were under a state of fear. Uh, they sort of mapped out the brain through an MRI, what it was when that brain was in that hypersensitivity sensitivity mode. And then when they sort of re programmed or reprocessed that pain process, they took another image and realized that different parts of the brain were sort of lighting up. Is that right? Did I describe it? So they get more of the brain is going to be lit up mm -hmm. when we're in a chronic pain state because right. it, it's recruiting all of the, it, the emotional areas, the memory areas, right. it recruits all of the areas of the brain or the, the areas of the brain that are getting mapped and are helping to protect. Right. And, and so processes. yes, it's more, yeah, it's more lit up on people who are in pain, in right. chronic pain. Yep. And, and when we retrain that, when you redo an MRI or yep. a functional MRI, yep. which is totally not clinically applicable, which mm -hmm. is, too yes, yeah. but you can see that it is quieter. It right. is, there's less alarms going off. Right. 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 Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's, that's a key point there. The second thing was what I loved is that you're so intuitive and you know about trauma care in general, but when we have clients or parts of the community who have experienced trauma, they often can't get into the headspace to be able to explain what's going on or don't want to think through that. So they, you bring them back into their body. So you brought them into their feet, which was a really safe way to be able to move to the next step. So that was also really important. And I, and I say that only because everything you're doing has meaning. Every yeah. approach you're taking is based in or on the research that's happening now in neuroscience, right? You guys are uh, leading your patients through uh, all these really important steps. And I think taking that like paying attention to the body is almost a bottom up approach, mm -hmm. a, a body to mind approach, right? Where traditional therapies take um, a mind to body approach, mm -hmm. you can go either way. But I do yes. have patients and psychology and psychotherapy is so important. So I, I am not dismissing this. I work like with a yep. lot of therapists that are, are it's a great it's a great adjunct and yeah. if and but i do have people who have been through a lot of talk therapy mm. and they're still experiencing the pain it's almost like their body remembers like their brain can make sense of it yep but their body hasn't responded so then you can teach through the body safety right. you we touched on a while back too on um hope I think this is one of the big words <laughs> other than being such a great example of having gone through endometriosis, having gone through pelvic pain. Um, how else do you offer hope to the people that you see? There are a few ways to instill hope for people. I think 
getting them to understand pain. And once we figure out what is the driver to their pain and letting them know that's the only thing that's missing, we need pain can be changed. Mm -hmm. We just need to figure out what is the main driver and it can be multiple areas for sure. You can get an overlap of, you know, inflammatory response, giving pain, versus it being mapped on the brain you can get both right Mm -hmm. so you want to sort of address both sides Mm -hmm. establishing a good trusting relationship is important i mean someone's not going to be feel hopeful if they don't trust their therapist right so uh, that's an important thing i think using the science knowing the science and talking about the science i mean i'm just the messenger then Right. Well, I'm like, I've read tons of research on this area. We, you yeah. know, you and I have done tons of research in this area. We're not just talking off the cuff of right. our head. Yep. We're, we're, we're laying it out that this is changeable, at right. least getting them back to moving, getting them back to living a better life. Right. right. So right. once they know that the science is there, mm-hmm. they are not different. They're human. A lot of people think, no, but I'm, this is different. I'm like, are you human? Mm -hmm. You're not different. Right. That's right. That's right. We just have to figure out how for you. That's it. That's right. Yeah. At least in your experience, convincing people beyond the biological side only that my pain is coming directly from my tissues if they're really stuck in that moment and not believing that the brain, the brain is absolutely part of it, how do you pull them into the big picture approach? I mean, I know you can use the education piece, which I think is so important. And that's why we're seeing when you combine education with, for example, movement or treatment, they have better outcomes. But are there any tricks or anything that you are seeing for those who are really stuck in the idea that it's just about their knee or the hip, how do you gently coax them beyond that point? Well, I actually bring it back to them and say, how is this pain affecting your life? What are you able to do or what are you not able to do that you were able to do before you had the pain? How is it affecting your relationships? Mm -hmm. How is it affecting your work? So we get into the social side of things. Mm -hmm. Are you still going for dinners at your friend? I mean, okay, well, COVID, we- Yeah, that's right, yeah. (laughs) I mean, besides COVID- Exactly. When we had a social life here in Ontario, still in lockdown, you know, there will become a time where we are allowed to socialize more again, but are they- are they ready to, or are they more sensitized? So I will sort, I will bring it back to them to get them to realize how it's affected them psychologically and socially. And I'll say, this is how pain works. It, uh, this is exactly your point. It does affect the psychological, it does affect the social. Mm -hmm. And so does getting rid of the pain mean you can be more social? Ironically, getting our life back Mm -hmm. diminishes the pain it diminishes the pain right so i try and say well these other areas where that you're kind of avoiding are actually opportunities to help ease the pain Mm -hmm. and so once we write down all of those things and again looking at titrating that in a safe manner so for example if they have a lot of pelvic pain or tailbone pain with sitting Mm-hmm. And they're going to a friend's house for dinner mm-hmm. and they're worried, oh, everybody's going to be sitting. I need to stand up a lot. Then it's like looking at, okay, how about you drive, you drive yourself or you drive outside of your partner so that your partner doesn't, ha- or you have a, a key word that will allow you to be able to dismiss yourself if needed Mm -hmm. or you talk to your like how close are you to these friends where you're like i might need to stand up sometimes or i might need to go lie down like it depends how close you are but you have an out if 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 this then this is my plan right right so you just have to come up with plans around this so that it's Mm -hmm. creating a sense of safety but socialization has been shown to be 
the biggest factor in our mental health. Absolutely. And what have we not had for two and a half years? <laughs> yes. Right? So yeah. it is, that is an important com component to our health, including our physical health. Mm -hmm. So we do want to get that back, but in a manner that is perceived safe. Safe. Exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. The last bit is, and I know we touched on a little bit before, but I'm just wondering if there's any piece of advice you want to leave people either who are, if they are living with chronic pain, things that they can do themselves, that obviously reaching out to a pelvic specialist is really important. You did touch on the fact, you gave them a little exercise where if they just thought about the pelvis itself, and if it brought about, you know, difficult emotions or dissociation, uh, that was a piece or of pain, pain or pain. Exactly. Pain. Yeah. Is there anything else that you felt might be something they could either, either they can do at home? Oh, I think there's a lot that, I mean, it obviously depends on their symptoms, but for right. example, urgency. Yes. So the, the feeling that you have to go pee all the time, let's look at the context around that. Mm -hmm. Did it start in April, 2020? Mm-hmm. Yep. So a month after COVID started, right. did your pain start start to do a little investigating yourself? Did your pain start around a time that was stressful? Right. And including including endometriosis pain. So the, you could be my age, which I won't name, but like thinking <laughs> back to when it started. Did it start when you went into high school? Because some people it starts with their first period, but what else was going on at that time? What else was going on? Did your parents get a divorce? Mm -hmm. Was it when you've already had your period, but you started to get pain when you first went to university? Mm -hmm. So off, just see if the context around your symptoms, including IBS, it may not be pain. It mm -hmm. could be constipation. It could be um diarrhea it could be a flip-flop between the two did it start around the context of a stressful situation mm -hmm. that's one clue that our nervous system's overprotective mm -hmm. um urgency if that's the case and you're like oh i do notice it I i'm more urgent i have more urgency when i am anxious about something versus when i'm nice and relaxed i could you know when i'm sitting and watching netflix and relaxed i could watch a whole show whereas when i'm at work i'm going every 15 minutes right mm -hmm. so then you can start to try and push push the amount of time between those times when you know i just went I, i'm i know if i go it's just gonna be a dribble dribble yeah. as long as pain isn't involved you right. can push those just uh, in case peas yeah a little longer the time of if it's more complex if there's pain so don't okay. do this if there's pain but urgency and frequency you can yeah. do that with Urgency, think of this. Urgency actually sometimes has triggers like every time I put my key in my lock or every time I pull in my driveway. Oh. So if that's the case, then what you can do is just before you get out of the car to go to the, your doorway, just there's other techniques, but basically relax your belly, do some breathing, and then on the way up to the door, distract yourself. Like look at a squirrel running up the tree or think about uh, math. I'm like horrible. At, like you know, backwards from five, like by from 100 by five or something to distract your mind mm -hmm. because it can be like a Pavlovian response. Like right. every t time I put my, you know, Pavlov's dog, right? Mm -hmm. So it can be a learned response, a reaction, a conditioned response. Right. So see if you get these urgencies every time you hear water or, you know, if there's a trigger. Yes. So there's lots of little tips and tricks that we have that we can give to people. It kind of depends if it's pain or if it's right. urgency or if it's constipation. I have I have tons of stuff I could give to people. Um, that should be a whole other show. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. There's so much to talk about the whole IBS thing. I feel like, yeah, it's a classic symptom of sensitization. R there you go. Okay. It's staying. It is. It's been proven. It's been <laughs> proven to be a classic symptom. Uh, it's a, it's a central sensitization syndrome. Okay. That's the staying on the podcast. I did not know that. I really didn't. Yeah. I always assumed yeah. that, um, 
I, Same with fibromyalgia. Yes. Yes. Jaw pain. Yep. Oh my gosh. There's a bunch of them. I actually did a podcast on fibro and just the whole yeah. hypersensitivity thing. So yeah. thank you so, so very much, very much for this conversation today. If anybody wants to learn more, Jill has, uh, we have two websites for Jill. First one um, at her clinic is www.hbpw.ca. Also, she's just launching a brand new one. It's uh, www.endotogether.com, E-N-D-O together.com. 